Go ahead and grab your Bible and go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Um, we are working our way through Mark rather quickly. Um, so just so you know, we've got two more weeks after this in Mark, and then we're going to take a four-week break uh, to do a series leading up to Easter. So, And that's going to break right in the middle of the book of Mark, so it's going to be um, helpful for us to take a step back talk about some other things leading up to Easter, and then we will jump back into Mark um, after that. Uh, So that's just an FYI. I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 6, verse 14, all the way to verse 56. Um, I know. What What am I doing? Right? Mark 6, 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elisha. Another said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Rhodius had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head at once, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. But when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, Hey, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces 
And the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Uh, Well, as you can tell, we do have a lot to cover today, and the primary moment that we will be looking at today is the feeding of the 5,000. And most people, not even more than Christians, are familiar with this story. It's, it's uh, the only miracle, miracle in all four Gospels, right? Only miracle in all four Gospels. And so one of the questions that we have to ask and answer is why? Why does each Gospel writer be sure to include this moment in their Gospel? And, and you know, many times when we think about this story, the feeding of the 5,000. At least, maybe it's just me. Uh, but I've always thought of it as a happy picnic, right? It's, it's, a, it's a picnic with Jesus. We think of blankets and picnic baskets and rainbows and unicorns. And this is just a great moment, right? Jesus is handing out bread to kids like, you get some bread, you get some bread, you get some bread. Like everybody gets bread and gets to have a picnic with Jesus. But, and if that's your understanding of this moment, my prayer for us is that God would open our eyes to see, because this moment, it's a declaration. I mean, Jesus is making a statement about his kingship today. And specifically in the book of Mark, Mark puts two important stories around this moment to highlight some very specific Things And it's going to shed some light on what kind of king Jesus is, on what kind of king he is, and it's going to foreshadow what he intends to do as king. So we're actually going to pick it up in verse 30, right? I know we're skipping a lot. We're going to work backwards, and then we're going to work forward. So let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So notice, obvious, right? It says the apostles returned. Well, where were they, right? Last week, we talked about verse 7, as Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, that up to this point, um, the disciples had just been watching Jesus do all the work. They'd been watching him cast out demons. They had been watching him heal. But the time has come for the disciples to begin participating in the work of Christ. They had been watching, and now it's time to act. This is how discipleship works, right? You watch, and then you begin to participate. So, uh, verse 31, it says, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So they return from going out two by two, and they want to rest. They've been, they're tired, right? They've been traveling. They've been talking to people. Some of them were maybe introverts, right? And they say, I need some alone time, right? And so it says they had no leisure even to eat. That Jesus tells them, hey, let's go find a place so that we can rest. But the problem is, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants a piece of him. If you've been healing sickness and casting out demons, right? I mean, you're going to draw some attention. So everyone notices them and tries to beat them to the spot. So let's skip down to verse 34. 
It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So when they get ready to rest, they realize there is this massive group of people waiting for us. I mean, and think about it, right? They're tired. They're exhausted. You'd think that Jesus would be almost annoyed here at this point. I mean, he just wants to rest. But how does Jesus react? He says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that statement has deep biblical implications. It is a statement that has massive meaning because a shepherd is a metaphor all throughout Scripture for the leaders of Israel. He looks at this crowd and he essentially says, they have no one. They have no one. And when you realize, when you realize what this moment is addressing, what it's talking about, then the structure of Mark chapter 6 will begin to make sense. I mean, let me ask you, when I was reading it, did you just think, this is weird? Anybody? You can raise your hand. It's okay. This is weird. Why are, the, why are we talking about these together? Has Colton lost his mind? Um, why did Mark put these stories next to each other? I mean, right in the middle, um, in, verses, in verses 14 to 29, we get what seems to be a random insert about John the Baptist. And it's not even chronologically in sync with what's happening with the disciples, right? Jesus sends them out, random insert about John the Baptist, and then they return. Like chronologically, this story with John the Baptist and Herod should be in like Mark chapter 3, right? Like this was way before the feeding of the 5,000. So why do we get this story about King Herod beheading John the Baptist in between Jesus sending out the disciples and then returning for the feeding of the 5,000? Because it's a contrast, Remember when we talked about in Mark at the beginning in Mark chapter 1, the Markin sandwiches? This is one of the primary examples of a Markin sandwich, where uh, Mark will insert a different moment in between a big moment to highlight the moment outside of it. So this moment with John the Baptist and Herod is supposed to teach us something about the scriptures around it, right? And Mark wants to show us here two shepherds. He wants to show us two shepherds. King Jesus, who is building a kingdom, healing the sick, calling people from the darkness of sin to the kingdom of light, and King Herod, the current shepherd of the people of Israel. And so let me, I'll just run through the story for you real quick. We won't read it again, but King Herod is a leader that does not care about his people. His only aim is what will make him powerful and give him more status and more satisfaction. Herod tells his brother's wife to leave his brother, right? Marry him instead, and so she does. And so John the Baptist begins to stand up to Herod. He says, hey, that's not lawful. You can't do that. He begins to preach the, to- the truth to Herod, and the text says that Herod is perplexed by this. He respects John. He fears John. The text says that he heard him gladly, but Herod's new wife now has a grudge against John the Baptist. She doesn't like the things that, she has been t- or that he has been telling her husband. So Herod throws this lavish party for his birthday, and his wife sees an opportunity, right? Herod's daughter-in-law begins to dance for Herod and all his noble, and in a display of power, he says, ask for me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. You know what's interesting about this whole moment? is that Herod's not even a real king. Do you know that? Herod's not even a real king. Herod's dad was king. His, his dad was King Herod the Great. This is just Herod Antipas, 
right? When King, when Herod the Great died, he said, none of my kids can rule, and he just split his kingdom up into four parts. This is just Herod, Herod Antipas. Mark calls him king, ironically, because King Antipas, Herod Antipas wanted to be king. In fact, later on, this is interesting, um, for those of you that like history, um, Herod Antipas, uh, he petitions to Rome to be king. He says, hey, make me king. And they actually depose him instead. They say, no, bro, you're not going to be king, right? But he wants to be king. He has a palace. He throws lavish banquets. And he loves his power. And so this girl says, hey, give me the head of John the Baptist. And even though Herod respects and likes John, the text says that Herod called for the executioner immediately. And when Herod saw an opportunity to stand up for the truth, when he had an opportunity to stand up for everything that John the Baptist had been preaching, he chooses power instead. And meanwhile, not in a palace, but in a field. Not at a lavish banquet, but in a place where people will beat Jesus to the spot and sit and listen to him teach for hours, who will go hungry just so they can hear more about him, Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And we are meant to think of Ezekiel 34 in this moment, which is a massive text in the Old Testament. Let me just read part of it. We're, supposed to, we're meant to think of Ezekiel 34. Verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy, and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. Think about what Jesus has been doing, right? The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and I, my servant David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And here's what's interesting about Ezekiel 34. He says that the servant David will be prince among them, but if you know your Old Testament, you know that David died long before Ezekiel ever lived, right? So what's he talking about here? The son of David was someone they had been waiting for. Someone that, if you were a child, you heard stories about the son of David. For generations, stories were told about the son of David, a Messiah who would come in David's line, who was coming to rescue them. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. The feeding of the 5,000 is much more than just a cool miracle that Jesus did. It's Ezekiel 34. It's Jesus declaring that he is the rightful king. He's the true Shepherd, it's Jesus declaring his mission to gather the scattered, to gather as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. And he's not taken from people. 
He's giving himself to people. He's not indulging. He's serving. He's taking his rightful place as king, as the shepherd of Israel. Now, the people of Israel had misunderstood how the Messiah would be king among them. They thought the Messiah would come with violence and force to overtake their rulers. In fact, in John's gospel, he will tell us that by the time Jesus is done feeding them, they want to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. I mean, by the end of this moment, they understand what's happening, and they demand that Jesus, John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus has to escape them. They want to make him king. They want to grab their torches and burn Herod's palace down. But Jesus isn't interested in that kind of kingdom. He's not interested in being that kind of king. He wants to call people to repentance. His kingdom does not take, it gives. He wants disciples, people who love what he loves, people who hate what he hates. And so if that's Jesus' mission, to scatter, to, or to, to, to gather the scattered, how is he going to do it? That's what we see in this story. How does he do it? It's interesting. Verse 35, it says, It grew late, and his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I want you to notice something that I think is pretty cool here. This is maybe just a sidebar. But the disciples are beginning to think like leaders here. Do you notice that? The disciples assess a problem, and they bring a solution. Jesus had just sent them out two by two. They'd been watching, but now they're participating. And they come to Jesus with a problem and a solution. They say, the problem is that this is a desolate place. There's nothing around. It's late. People have been here for hours, so they must be hungry. And their solution is, hey, we should send them away so they can go get themselves something to eat. And that's a very reasonable suggestion, right? Like if I stood here and I preached till 2 p.m., you'd be like, hey, can somebody go talk to the dude, right? I'm hungry. Like everyone's got a limit, right? And so it would be, it'd be a rational solution. Hey, Colton, send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can get themselves something to eat. But Jesus is going to put them in a situation with no rational solution. Jesus creates a crisis here. Verse 37, it says, he answered them, you give them something to eat. And the emphasis in Greek there is on you. It's the first word. And so he says, you give them something to eat. That in this moment, Jesus makes them feel their inadequacy. There is no way that they can come up with a solution to fix the issue at hand, to do what... Jesus has asked them to do. And the disciples' response to Jesus' request is the most sarcastic they will ever get with Jesus. None of the other gospels have this moment. It says, they said to him, oh, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, them to, give it to them to eat? A denarii was a day's wage. So 200 denarii, let's say, let's just throw out a number, six months, right? Uh, $20,000. So essentially they say, oh, should we just get that $20,000 that we have laying around? Oh, didn't you just tell us not to carry a money bag? Right? Didn't you just tell us not to carry any bread? Basically, they say, Jesus, that's a dumb idea. That's, that's really what they say. You can sense the frustration in this moment. But what's Jesus doing? He is making them feel their inadequacy. There is no rational solution that I can come up with to do what Jesus has asked me to do. So here's a question for us to think about. Does he ever do that with us? Do we ever feel inadequate in our calling? 
He has called you to be salt and light in the world. That's some small task. He has called you to love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. He has called you to love each other as he has loved you. Think about that. To love each other as he has loved you. To trust him when it feels like the walls are closing in. To have faith in the midst of suffering. He has called you to make disciples of all nations. Panta ta ethnos. All the peoples. There are 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. Almost 3 billion people. Right? 42% of the world's population have never heard the gospel. They will be born, live, and die without ever hearing the gospel or meaning a believer. In Africa, there are 3,000 animistic tribes who are following false gods and spirits who are not worthy to be worshipped. In Japan, Laos, and Vietnam, there are 250 million Buddhists who are following a false god. In uh, India and Bangladesh, there are 950 million Hindus who are worshipping false gods. In North Africa and the Middle East, there are 1.5 billion Muslims who are worshiping a false god. And God has told us to go. He's given us a task. Can that overwhelm you sometimes? When you think about your own walk with Christ, all that he has called you to be and to do, and all that he has called you to be and do in the world, I can't do that. Make disciples of all nations? God, that's a dumb idea. Trust you with all of my heart. God, I'm, I'm lucky if I have an ounce of peace during the day. And so what's our natural response to these things? What's our natural response? We come up with rational solutions. That's what the disciples do. They, they bring a rational solution to Jesus, and Jesus blows it up. See, the disciples here, they want to do ministry, but it's not the type of ministry that Jesus is interested in. Jesus is in the business of doing things according to who he is. Not according to who we are, not according to what we can do, but according to what he can do. And I I just wonder, man, I wonder how many ministry programs and mission strategies we've created that fit into our abilities, that, that are based on what we can accomplish. The disciples here bring a solution based on their capabilities. They are capable of sending people away to get food, and that's a fine solution, but Jesus isn't interested in fine solutions. So let let me just, let's just for us to ponder as a church, right? When you think about what God wants to accomplish, what do you think of? When you think about what God wants to accomplish, what do you think of? And, And here's how to gauge that. When you pray, what do you pray for? Do you pray based on what you're capable of accomplishing? are what God is capable of accomplishing. Too many times the people of God trying to do the work of God without God. We base our prayers based on what we think we can rationally accomplish. And we forget that the God who forgives sins, who controls nature and holds time in the palm of his hands is in charge. Like, what if? What if we prayed based on who he is and not on who we think we are, or what we think we can reasonably accomplish. Like, what would it look like to actually pray as if you gave control over to him? To, to pray as if you really surrendered to him? And for some of you, and I'm completely serious, maybe it's time that you actually pray, God, do I need to move to an unreached part of the world? 
to move to a place where your name has never been known. I mean, that's not rational. That's the work of God. And, and I wonder how many of this room have felt the call to do something, to act, but because it felt a little risky and it didn't make logical sense, we didn't do it. For some of us, that, that's as simple as joining a home group, right? Because at this point in your life, that is not rational. That does not make sense. That is terrifying for you. Being in that environment with people that could hurt you, being vulnerable like that, that's not rational. I mean, you'd rather show up, sit here, and leave alone. And that may be good for a time, for, for a season. But what if God is calling you into something more? For some of you, it may be changing your address to move to another part of the globe. Part of the globe. For, for some of us, if we're honest, it's as, um, maybe it's as a parent or a brother or a sister. Maybe it's being vulnerable and actually repenting of some sin. It's not rational for you to do that. That breaks the whole system, right? It changes everything. It changes the structure of your house. It changes the structure of relationships. To come to someone in repentance, that's tough. That's not logical. That's not rational. But what if you acted based, not based on who you are, but based on who God is, who calls you to repent and to have faith and to reconcile? God is not in the business of doing rational things. He's not. And what I love about this moment is that Jesus does it on purpose. Do you notice that? This is unnecessary. Jesus creates a crisis here. He makes them feel just how inadequate they are. He does the same with us. He will make us feel our dependency. He will make us feel just how much we need him. And, and if I look, I love verse 38. He's patient with them. It says he said to them, how many, you know, he doesn't shame them for their sarcasm. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. They, they take their five loaves and two fish, and they give it to Jesus. And I love that. Because if, you're, if, if, I, if it's me or you, right? Like, say someone told you, let's just make up a simple task. Hey, go get 50 cups of water. And you can't find, you can find two cups, right? That's all you can find, two cups. What's the temptation in that moment? You're just going to give two people cups? What you're probably going to do is come back and say, hey, we don't have, we don't have enough. But what I love about this moment is that they don't look at Jesus and say, hey, we don't have enough food. What do they do? They give it to him. What little they have, they give it to him. They didn't say, well, we can't accomplish the task. I guess we'll just give up, which I think is what we do a lot of times. God, I can't, I can't walk with you like the way that Scripture says. I fall short every time. I can't repent like that. I can't make disciples of all nations. What do we do? We give up because we can't do it. But what the disciples do, they give what little they have to Jesus. They know it's not enough, but they still give it to him. And so please hear this. The, the burden of meeting expectations, of performing, you've got to let that roll off your back by the grace of Christ. This idea that if I can't do it, then I don't belong is a lie from the enemy. The disciples know they don't have enough, and they still bring it. He has not asked us to perform for him. He has not asked us to change the world. He's not asked us to save people. He's asked us to have faith. To have faith. To bring our little bank account, our little house, our little skills, our little gifts, and be faithful with it. And bring it in faith and in trust. To let him take our inadequacy and watch him 
display his glory. I mean, look what he does in verse 41. It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples except for the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. I mean, come on, it's the wonder of the king, right? Bring him what you have in humility and step back in faithfulness. Let him do the work. Now, I want to jump ahead for a second. How do the disciples respond to this miracle? Right? Do you notice this, this interesting next moment? Um, Jesus casually walks on water. No big deal, right? Uh, <laughs> like, that's kind of how it's like, okay, are we not really recognizing that Jesus is walking on water? It's just kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's a weirdly written story, but it's like that for a purpose, and let me tell you why. Uh, but let me give you a summary. Jesus goes onto the mountain and tells them, uh, hey, I'm going to go pray, so you guys go ahead and, and you go ahead of me. And when Jesus finishes praying, they're on the boat in the sea. It says that they were making headway painfully, right? The wind was against him. And about the fourth night of the not, a fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then it says he meant to pass by them. The world. So the fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So this is the middle of the night. Now, I'm going to be completely honest. When I got to this point in my study this week, I was like, this story is weird, right? Pass by them? What does that mean? I mean, Jesus just casually taking a stroll on the water and he wants to be avoid being seen by them? What's going on? But it turns out we are meant to think of another story in Scripture where God passed by a human. Can you, you know what it is? Moses. Jesus is passing by them so that they will see him. He's passing by them so that they will see him. Jesus wants to see him walking on, a, on the water in a display of his divine, holy glory. We're meant to think of Exodus when God passes by Moses and reveals his glory. Exodus 33, 22, listen to the language. He says, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In a display of glory, Jesus passes by them on the water. And then verse 50 says, for they saw him and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then we get this strange verse. Verse 51. He got into the boat with him, and the wind ceased, which that's huge too. We're not even talking about that. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Weird, right? Weird? They just saw Jesus walk on water, and they're astounded. But here's the deal. They shouldn't have been astounded. They should not have been astounded. They should know by now that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah. They were astounded because they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Mark says they didn't understand about the loaves. What in the world does that mean? What do the loaves have to do with them seeing Jesus walk on water and being astounded? Well, did you notice the language Mark uses when Jesus feeds the people? Do you notice anything there? Let me read it again. See if you can catch it. This is verse 41. 
taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Sounds similar to a meal that Jesus will have later with his disciples, right? Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them. And what did he say? Take, this is my body. The feeding of the 5,000 is not just a picnic. It's not just a picnic. It's a declaration by the king, my body will break for you. My body will break for you. Do you notice verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied? The bread is satisfying to everyone who eats it. What does that remind you of? John 6.33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And they all ate and were satisfied. John 6, 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. They didn't understand the loaves. They just didn't, they still did not get it. They did not understand why he was there, who he was, and what his purpose was. Their hearts were hardened. They did not get it. And the question that we all have to ask is, do we get it? Do we get it? that he came from heaven, the bread of life, and died and rose from the grave. And anyone who feasts on him are satisfied because he's better. He's better than anything else. This, this is the gospel of the king. The promise is that all who eat that bread will be satisfied, that he's our shepherd. We are his sheep scattered, and he has gathered us to feed us. And what does he feed us? Himself. Himself that he laid down his life as the bread of life and his body broke on that cross. His body broke on that cross, but it was broken for us. I want you to stand with, if you would stand with me real quick, I'm gonna close. And I, and I wanna read, um, I wanna read, this might sound strange, but just hear me out. Um, I wanna read the first three verses of Psalm 23. Just listen. I mean, I pray that, that these words would just pierce us. This is Psalm 23, verses, and I'm just going to read the first, first three verses, and then I'll pray. Consider the shepherd. Consider the bread, the satisfying bread of his body that broke. The, the display of glory. The divine and the human. And one. Perfection. The Lord is my shepherd, what does it say? I shall not want. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. The bread of life. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And why? Why does he do all this? Why? For his name's sake. Not for our name's sake, but for his name's sake. Because it's in the praise of his name that we find our joy. We were created for it. That is why you are here. That is why I'm here. That is why we exist for his name's sake. But it's in that place that we find restoration. 